Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Hello everyone, welcome to Luck on Sunday. No Nick this week, don't look so disappointed. Uh, the great man is currently in Canada, but as the saying goes, the show must go on. But we launch things today with David Probert, who I'm pleased to say is indeed in the studio. Uh, David, thanks a lot for making the effort to come in this morning. Um, first of all, I described you as one of the most informed jockeys in the weighing room. How do you feel about the way the season has gone this year? but also the last few seasons where, was it two years ago, you achieved your season's best and you, you've smashed that this season so far? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's, it's been a great few years, really. Um, I've been lucky enough to ride for many consistent uh, owners and trainers and, you know, I've been very lucky for them also. And um, to reach a century for the last few seasons yeah. has also been amazing. Well, let's have a look at the jockey's standings in the championship because you currently lie fourth in that. I mean, your whole statistics for the year are quite incredible. But within the jockey's championship itself, 79 uh, winners so far, 1.1 million pound in prize money. Uh, you know, O'Shane Murphy, William Buick and Tom Marquand, only the, the jockeys ahead of you in the standings. But for the year, you've ridden 124 winners uh, and won 1.48 million pounds. So it is going remarkably well. Has it exceeded your expectations from where you were say five or six years ago or is this something that you always felt would come with a patient approach um yeah a bit of both really um i mean it's been a lot of hard work being put into it um i mean over the last four or five years i've you know like i said i've consistently wrote plenty of winners and um i felt as though this year it's slowly become a bit better and slightly better horses and riding those winners on the Saturdays and so on and um, I've really got on a roll and I, I was very lucky through last winter I had a real good I had a real good se season and um, it kind of bounced into into the grass and I was always really consistently riding winners every day and it was just kind of got the ball rolling those better winners mm. come and um, yeah it's it's been a, it's been a great year. Let's take it back to the start, if we can. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, born in Wales. Uh, how did you decide that being a jockey was going to be the thing for you? Well, um, I grew up in a in a small town in in Wales, uh, South Wales, um, in the valleys called Bargoyde, and um, me and my sister always had ponies as at a young age, and um, we just we just enjoyed kind of racing them along the field and. Um, you know, and we just knew that we wanted to be in racing because my f my father was always into it, and also my mother loved riding horses. Also, um, never really done much good at school, and um, <laughs> <laughs> we're all in that boat. <laughs> yeah, but um, no, I, I always really wanted to to, to be in racing. Um, never ver very big, um, very light. Also, I was always the smallest in my class, and. Um, kind of just w wanted to achieve something really in racing. So at the age of 16, I went off to the racing school um, 
and then got allocated to go to Andrew Bowling's and um, yeah the rest is really history really I was kind of there for for six months and then Andrew said yeah I'd like to get your license out and um, obviously I was there with William Buick at the time and um, it was it was kind of it took a while for me to kind of get get the hang of things early on in um, what respect well it uh, I rode a lot of lot of horses and not many winners through my first probably eight months of riding um, I think it took me like 50 odd rides to get a winner and um, I think I'm my first winner when I was 18 at uh, Wolverhampton yeah. for John Llewellyn and uh, I it just it just really just things just clicked then and I was able to kind of get confidence in the races and and started having a great year um, in 2000 I think eight or something then we we were joint champion apprentice me and William yeah. so it, it, it things just went on from there just, just remind us when you when you rode that first winner for for John Llewellyn. What what was your your body weight at that time? Well, I remember my first ride for Andrew. Um, it was on a horse called Tiny Tim at Lingfield. Never forget it. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I got on the scales. I was like six six eleven, six twelve. Wow. Yeah, so it was fairly light. God, that's half my weight. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, oh. I was very very light, very light jockey, and um, you know, but. Obviously, I've been very lucky, and it's stayed pretty light. And now I'm a level offer about eight, seven, eight, eight. And yeah. Um, yeah, I've always been pretty lucky on that on that respect. Can I ask one thing about growing up? Because I was chatting to Jason Weaver about being a small kid growing up at school, and you you tend to get pushed around a little bit, a little bit of bullying, and you're on the receiving end because you were one of the smaller ones. And he was describing the fact that that sort of upbringing made him determined to find something in which he was going to be a success in at some point that perhaps nobody else was going to be able to, you know, the, 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 the bigger ones, the ones who did a little bit of the, of the bullying or the pushing around. Did, did you ever have that experience at all, being, being a, a small lad growing up, uh, you know, at school yeah. times? Um, I mean, yeah, I suppose it did really. Um, my, my mother was very much into her horses and um, she sadly passed away when I was nine and uh, I know that she she wanted us to be in racing me and my sister and my sister's obviously she she works for for Charlie Appleby now and she has two two little girls and she's she's doing great also in in the industry but um, yeah I just really wanted to kind of achieve something um, that she wanted us to really do and obviously being very small also um, at school yeah I did get thrown around and probably bullied at times but um yeah it was always something in my heart that I really wanted to to, to achieve mm. you know in, in something uh, I imagine therefore that when you won the or shared the, the the champion apprentice title in 2008 with William uh I imagine your your mum wouldn't have been far away from your thoughts at that moment and I I guess there must have been a, a huge feeling of pride in that yeah most definitely and um my father also he's been he's been uh, like a rock to us and um, he always kind of made sure that we were, we were always had the opportunities to go forward in, into something and he made sure that uh, he was taking us up to new markets or places to ride out and so on so no he's been a, a you know a massive part of my life and um, he still is and he takes me racing also so it's you know it's been a real family thing and yeah. uh, you know it's, it's it's been good that I've actually kind of achieved something you know where I am right now. Absolutely. So go back to 2008. As you well know, having shared the the champion apprentice title, a lot of people will have correlated both yours and William's career and how William's gone on and the things that he's done, and, and your slightly more sort of 
um, later progress in comparison to William. Was there any, ever, ever any envy watching William doing the things that he's done since that champion apprentice title? No, because I think, you know, William obviously deserves the opportunities and I'm not saying I don't deserve the opportunities. Um, it took a little bit of a while to kind of get things rolling and, you know, William got very lucky and um, he went off to Dubai to ride for um, for Druber and um, mm. then got the, the um, John Gosden job. So um, he's done very well and he, he, he was able to um, have a bit of luck in those group, group company races early on in his career. And, um, you know, he had a couple of horses that to take him to the top. Um, they were very difficult to find, but, uh, you know, I'm... I've been very loyal to Andrew and mm. Andrew's been very loyal to me also and um, stuck by the yard and I've ridden some very good horses from also. Yeah, uh, and we'll come to the horses in just a moment, but the, but the Balding team, it's, it's not just a team, is it? From, from everything that you hear from people who work there, from speaking to Andrew, Annalisa, etc., it's not a team, it's, a, it's more of a family. Would that be the right way to describe it? Yeah, most definitely, yeah. It's... Um, it's, it really is an amazing place, um, great place to learn, different gallops, you learn different things every day and <clears throat> when me and William were there as a young age, um, Ian was a very good mentor so and would take us through things and you know explain stuff when, even if we had a ride and go and watch the replay with him and so on and uh, it was just a real good place to grow up and um, a real fun place of that yeah. also. Did you ever get any serious telling off? <laughs> yeah, a couple. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would what would incur the wrath of the Baldings? What sort of examples you can tell us on a morning show? Yeah, um, so you take us through, you know, style of riding, don't be too wide, and where you could have positioned yourself a little bit better, switching your stick onto your left on a right-handed course, and stuff, just, you know, small stuff that matters in, you know, where, where you have to make those decisions in a split, you know, in a split-second yeah. decision, and, you know, he was, he was great to go through things like that. Well, we swapped a David for a Dave. Dave Ord is in the studio, editor of The Sporting Life. Thank you for coming in this morning, uh, Dave. How have you been? I haven't seen you for ages, and how much do you enjoy the racing on the weekend? Yeah, I'm great for thanks, Rishi. It was a good race. I mean, it was a slight come down from the weekend before, the hectic packed yes. programme, but there's plenty of good action at the UBNA and some significant winners too. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, the Air Gold Cup was the race that a lot of people were attracted to from a punting perspective. Um, I was wondering what would have been your thoughts on the most interesting angle on the race leading up to it, which is the draw. People keep going. And even on the day, things were going like that. Well, you want to be on the draw on the stand side or the far side rail, low numbers, and then Nazanin one up the middle. Going into the race, what were you thinking about where you wanted to be? Since the declarations, everyone was saying middle to high, but you started wavering. As soon as you saw the bronze cup, yeah. then you saw the silver cup, you saw the action unfolding, but everybody told you the pace was centre to high. So I, I clung to the hope that that's where you wanted to be. And then when Great Ambassador burst, seemingly clear, a long and a half yeah. out, I thought, we managed to get that one wrong. I've got <laughs> to stress, I didn't side with BL, so I didn't go for the one in stall 25, but what a spectacle it was, wasn't it? After split by the width of the track in the finish. Yeah, absolutely. That was the beauty of the race in the end. I mean, we'll, we'll look back at the, the Air Gold Cup from, from the start. And uh, I think the beauty of it was the fact that you always felt, wherever you were at one point or another, that you had a chance in the race. Um, I wonder at this point whether Kevin Stock had made it clear that he was going to do what he did. 
it was it was such a seemingly bold move, wasn't it? Then afterwards, it was Kevin Ryan in, and they discussed it. It was fresh ground, it was virgin ground, and the horse has got a slight track record for it, hasn't he? He, he raced on his own in the Stewards That's Cup right. down the middle, so he'd had a bit of a, a side, a bit of match practice. Clearly, like some of us, he, he doesn't need company to yeah. to excel. He's happy in his his old <laughs> skin, and he. But it was a bold move to go there, and from this point on, you're watching. There was a point down the centre. They looked to be a length and a half clear, and I did wonder if he'd made the mistake because he was drawn close enough to latch onto that group had he wanted to. That angle there, you just thought, is, yeah. right, is this centre group? So the that's place what to I thought. Be? At one point, you're thinking, right, centre is where you want to be, and then suddenly, far side start emerging, and then once you get close to the line, you got you got both sides. In. And, that, and you've almost not factoring them into it. Are you able to at this stage? You're looking at the two big groups, they've yeah. fanned out into one. We soon see Great and Batty to make the move. We think, oh well. That's a race-winning one. And then you realise that Kevin's clearly very interested by the stance yeah. rail. He knows he's in contention. And the side-on shot we get in a moment, that the final 100 yards when Bielsa takes off, right now you wouldn't believe he's going to win by as far as he does. It's a, it's a fantastic finish, a fantastic performance. And it was a really good air goal cut, wasn't it? A, a bit of everything. I think it was as well, because if you look at how far Great Ambassador ends up beating the horses on his side... I mean, he's actually thumped the horses in his group. He's won an Air Gold Cup side of by about four or five lengths, which would be extraordinary. It would, and I think you've got the two horses from a sort of racing purist point of view who, who you thought might do this. You've got Great Ambassador, who's the upwardly mobile sprinter, who they've got um, aspirations quite rightly potentially stepping into a pattern company. And Bielta, who's long looked well handicapped. Kevin Ryan has long thought is well handicapped and has long looked like he's going to win yeah. a big pot. And, for like four and a half furlongs, I wasn't sure, but this was the day that everything did fall right for him. Yeah, it's interesting, not surprising to hear Kevin Ryan using the old phrase, you know, you've got to be pattern class to win these races. And there's always been a suspicion, there genuinely has, it's not after timing to say, there's always been a suspicion that Bielsa is indeed that type of horse. He's owned by King Power, isn't he? They, they wouldn't really be after 0 to 90 handicappers running in this sort of six-print handicaps. Yeah, he's always had that touch of class as Bielsa. And you can make excuses for horses a lot, but he has looked one who things have conspired against yeah. time and time again. And it, it, it was the day it all came right for him. And I do think the second, I think Great Ambassador as a sprinter, is in the right hands as well Indeed. to go on and thrive. Well, they've got some good ones to compare with. Uh, five Air Gold Cup winners for the Kevin Ryan stable. What does that say? It's unbelievable, isn't it? It's so interesting to hear Kevin talking about it and his passion for it, which was ignited when he worked for Jack Berry, of course, <laughs> who <laughs> the Air Gold Cup was everything. That was Jack's yeah. Royal Ascot and York rolled into one. And that was obviously, it's ingrained in Kevin. And he yeah. always says that you don't think about the Air Gold Cup two or three weeks in advance. Yeah. It's a long-term project. Yeah. You need a horse with class. You need a well-handicapped horse. Yeah. And he knew that this year he had that with Bielsa. Yeah, and talk to me about the jockey, Kevin Stott, because he's definitely on an upward curve. Yeah, he's good, isn't he? he? He's really good and he's forming a real partnership with Kevin. And what he what he's getting is that ability to perform on the big stage, the big days for him. He's delivering, which is the acid test for a jockey. He's he's always been riding the winners up north. He's been on our radar for a little while, but he's beginning to, to burst through. And I think a ride like that yesterday really does help. In front of a big TV audience, in front of a big um, attendance at air, that, that felt like a big moment for Kevin Stott. It was a fantastic yeah. ride. A brave ride, cleared with the backing of the train. It was a joint plan. But for that to come off, for those tactics to pay off, that felt really significant. Yeah. Well, we have got Amy Ryan, who, of course, is an integral part of the racing TV team. And actually, we, we spoke to Amy Ryan earlier this week uh, on the knowledge uh, on racing TV. And um, we talked about all the successes of, of years gone by. We didn't really get a chance to talk too much uh, looking ahead to, to Bielsa's chances. Uh, Amy, good morning. 
Good morning, how are you? Oh, look at that. That's a magnificent sight. Uh, I think we're okay, but I suspect we're not quite as okay as the, the, the Kevin Ryan team. How are you all there? How are the heads? Oh, well, fine, actually, but we're all buzzing. Um, this is a horse that everyone absolutely adores. So to see him go win on the big day, I've never known a horse deserve a big win like he did yesterday. He deserved this. So, yeah, he's very proud of his cup. Now, what... To just give us a little bit of insight into the plan for Kevin Stott to do what he did. When did that plan get hatched? Um, well, he's a horse that does look right. Um, all horses have a preference. And you, he just hasn't had much luck this year with the ground and the draw. And obviously, at Ascot and Goodwood, he looked right. So having that stand side <laughs> for, um, for a horse tend to look right anyway, it was a massive advantage because you've got that rail to run against. And... I was actually surprised no one else ventured under the stand side rail because I'd been watching racing all day and you know they said a few times the fresh trips of ground were under the two rails. So I was quite surprised no one followed him up that stand side, but also delighted. Feels just looking for the champagne. <laughs> no, he's lovely. Um, I ride this horse every day and he's just the kindest, loveliest horse you could come across. He's so kind. He's just, yeah, he's just an absolute legend. And all credit to the owners. They've been very, very patient with him. Um, and, you know, the Air Gold Cup's been a plan for a long time. And like Dad said yesterday, often going there with a fresh horse is a good yeah. thing. And, yeah, he's repaid their patience. Like I said, he deserves this. Uh, and your dad also said that you have to be pattern class, uh, Amy, in order to, to defy the sort of handicap mark that you're asked to run off in the, the Air Gold Cup. So looking to the future with Bielsa, what, what next? Well, it, it's getting more and more competitive. We actually weren't sure. A couple of weeks before, I said, oh, do you think he'll get in? He said, I'm not sure. You know, 98, that just shows how competitive mm. the race has become. And we often say that you do need a potential group horse. And we believe this horse has been, is that class. And things just haven't gone right for him. But things just fell right from yesterday. And it just shows when, you know, when the owners are patient and they let you do the best for the horse and a plan comes together, it just shows that when everyone works together, you get these kind of results. Five Air Gold Cups with the Ryan team, Amy. It's quite an incredible record. You know, what, what does that mean when you, you look at all the success, the Group 1 successes, etc., that you, your, you and your, the, your dad and the team have had? What, what, when you see a five Air Gold Cups on the CV, what do you think about that? Oh, it's massive. It's a, race that, it's a race that most trainers in the country want to win. It's such a prestigious race. And, you know, it's one that we like to target every year and we like to plan out the horses that we have for it. And we often have quite a few in it, whereas this year we actually only had two horses in it, just showing how competitive the race has become. But this horse, we've always believed there's a big one in it. I've been banging on all year to everyone riding out that he's going to bag a big one. And um, I'm just delighted that he, he got that big one yesterday and he got his day in the sun. Well, Amy, I don't want to keep you too much longer because he's been, he's been really well behaved. But one horse I wanted to ask you about uh, who ran yesterday, who I thought still has a very exciting profile, even though she was beaten, Hala Hala Athmani, who I thought did really well to finish as close as she did because I thought she was a bit keen through the race. So I'd love to know what you made of it, what, 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 uh, what the team made of it. No, she's a lovely filly. She, we're very excited about her. Obviously, she made a very, very impressive debut at Carlisle. And to take that step into group company on just a second start, she travelled really sweetly throughout the race. She's a really big, scopey filly. Whatever she does this year is going to be a bonus for the future. So we're really looking forward to the future with her, looking forward to next year. Well, a lot to look forward to overall. Amy, thank you very much. Uh, and great to see the Air Gold Cup champion <laughs> this morning at the yard. Thank you very much.
Uh, let's move on to Newbury. Uh, excellent racing there over the two days as well on Friday and Saturday. But the big race was the Dubai Duty Free Mill Reef. And I think a lot of people, myself included, thought this was a really good opportunity for Dabab. Mm. Uh, a bit disappointed with how enthusiastic he was in the early part of the race. Also beforehand, worth pointing out, one or two people thought he was probably a little bit on the lean side, but uh, you know, maybe that, that's a sign that he was fit and raring to go, probably too fit, too raring to go. Um, but the winner was Wings of War for, for Clive Cox, another big two-year-old winner for him in the space of a week. Isn't he unbelievable, Clive, in how he sources these horses and brings them on through the season? As you say, when the flying childers at Doncaster and here he is winning the, the Mill Reef Stakes with a horse who's now got a legitimate shot to go to the Middle Park. I mean, we've got a couple of two-year-olds who are tending to be beating each other full stop, but particularly in the sprinting division. So you'd imagine all roads would lead to the Middle Park with the winner. He himself is a bit headstrong, exactly. isn't he? I thought it's Adam Kirby was brilliant on him. Wonderful, because getting him relaxed before the race is a problem, getting him to relax during the race. And Adam got the right horses to track. He got him to to drop his head, drop the bit, and, and he was able to ride a race on him. I mean, the runner-up was set his own factions up front, but showed loads of speed, mm. didn't he? He looked in control of the race two furlongs out, so I thought the winner did really well to run him down. Like you, I, I thought this was an opportunity for Debab, and things might not have panned out rightly during the race, but that superlative form at Newmarket all of a sudden looked rock solid. After what Native Trail had done in Ireland, you thought we'd found the, yeah. the piece of form to follow, and he didn't quite live up to the billing, did he? he didn't, even when he got daylight, he didn't look quick enough, and he, was, he wasn't doing anything. Yeah. Well, it sort of fools me a little bit. We'll talk more about Wings of War in a second, but Debab fools me into thinking, okay, he might want a bit further, I don't know. But then he had the race won at Newmarket over seven furlongs, a furlong out, and then he got run down by Native Trailer Masakela. So not entirely certain what to do with him. No, you watched Newmarket and you did think six, didn't you? And then you watch this and you think, well, he, he wants seven. I mean, he hasn't got past Fabian inside the final furlong, but he hasn't lost any, no disgrace in that. Fabian's a really good two-year-old yeah. for an excellent team. And what another good race he's running, Pat and Company. But yeah, w Wings of War, I really like the way that he, he raced properly for the big part of the race. And then the way he knuckled down inside that final furlong to get there yeah. and get the job done. I thought, I thought that was very pleasing. It's that, it's that last bit that you mentioned, the way he knuckled down, because it was a similar story with Katura uh, at uh, Doncaster and the Flying Childers, watching the way they finish their races. I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, trainers and how they, their horses have certain characteristics that they, they, they repeat in all the individuals, and that's certainly something that's borne out by those two winners. Absolutely, and, it, and it's so typical, as you said, of the the, the Clive Cox tools and the way that he got there and got that done because even half a falling out you weren't sure were you got his head lower pitch himself yeah. got there and yeah he's out to crack at Middle Park surely hasn't he? Indeed I was going to ask about your thoughts on the strength of this year's Mill Reef I mean uh, how we maybe compare it with previous editions. Uh, it probably wasn't a, a red hot renewal but then again it isn't a red hot division of two-year-olds this year uh, we've been struggling to find mm -hmm. a, a champion for them all through this season. Points Lonsdale and Reach for the Moon had emerged. They took Knox last week. Native yeah. Trail came forward. I think Native Trail was the first performance of the season that went somewhere near where the ratings people yeah. want a champion two-year-old to see. Yeah. Well, not surprising, of course, that uh, Clive Cox has got another top-class two-year-old. He's well known for it. And uh, the, se the season's going very well for him, especially with the youngsters. And we're delighted to say that uh, Clive Cox is on the phone now. Clive, how are you? And how is the Mill Reef winner this morning? Good morning, Rishi. Yeah, I'm pleased to report he's fine. Um, really, really pleased with that performance yesterday. And uh, yeah, great to bag another mill reef. You might have heard Dave just mentioning here on the show that the way he knuckled down late on was perhaps the most Im impressive thing. And speaking to Adam after he came back in, he, he loved his attitude. And when he, he set him about collaring 
uh, hierarchy late on. His, his demeanor was really admirable. Has he always been this type of horse? Because just watching the early part of the race, Adam did really well to, to settle him into a rhythm. Yeah, I think he's always been, we've always liked him a lot. I think uh, in the spring and, and when we had a lot of soft ground, he wasn't um, as comfortable on that. That's a fact. Um, he ran really well at Leicester first time. And um, then he won at Nottingham, which although he won, we were still in, in the sort of throes of lockdown and, and everything else. There weren't a lot of people there. Uh, the, the most... Um, atmospheric feel we sort of got at the races properly was at York when, when he ran a super race uh, in the sales race but I think mentally all the time he, he's been taking steps forwards albeit quietly um, and then obviously when he ran at Kempton he was just trapped a little bit wide on, on an outside draw and was further back than ideal and, and still showed greenness but hit the line very well there and, and, you know, yesterday was the, the polished performance we've been expecting. But it's taken a few steps to get there. And, and mm. um, delighted he's, he's clearly showing that ability and talent that we always hoped he had. And is it Middle Park in his sights? I mean, I've got to discuss it with the owners. I think the horse is in, in charge more importantly. And I think that might be coming soon enough for him, Fair bearing enough. in mind what I've just said. Um, I think he's a, he's a really, really exciting prospect. I think Adam's... Summing up after the, the um, sales race at York was, wow, we've got a proper horse for next year. And I would, I would be firmly in, in tune with those words and, and probably more inclined, you know, dependent on how he is. And, and obviously we'll be discussing it thoroughly with, with connections. But um, I think it's a close enough gap, you know, to, to be turning out in the Mill Reef, that, to be turning out after the Mill Reef yeah. in the Middle Park that quickly. And am I right that things have come full circle with Wings of War? Because did you not train the dam for, for one run? Is that right, Clive? I did to begin with, yes, exactly. And, um, you know, Kevin Ryan did really well with her um, afterwards. But in the meantime, she was a really nice filly and, and had a, a little bit of... Um, there was, she was a lot of talent there. I mean, she was a black-type filly. Mm. So um, it's really nice. And, and um, uh, you know, he's, he's Dark Angel has done us... Uh, enormous favours with, with Harry Angel and, and many, many more um, exciting horses. So it was, it was a great, uh, great feeling yesterday. So next season, immediately people would think, right, Commonwealth Cup is the race for him, your record, etc. Is that the first big target of 2022 for Wings of War? Well, he'll have a Group 2 penalty now for the beginning of next year. But the pavilion, obviously, is, is the ideal stepping stone for most sprinters um, going forward to the, the Commonwealth Cup. And um, you know, I'm just delighted that we're talking um, this conversation with, with <laughs> a horse of that calibre to go forwards with. And, um, you know, we, we do um, enjoy those, those quick ones. And uh, this fella's really fitting the bill. Can I just indulge and ask you about one horse, if that's OK, Clive, before you go? Diligent Harry and whether we'd see him again this season. Yes, he's, he did really well. We had a hold-up with him as a, in his two-year-old year. So his first ever run was um, not until January this year. And mm. he took huge steps forward to win the all-weather final. He's still only had the one start on the turf. Um, but um, he hopefully with the ground, he, he could well be going for the Ben Goff at Ascot. Um, and and just, just everything was just happening a little bit too quickly for him. 
I still think he's going to be a very high-class performer with another winter on his back as well. So um, he's pretty good now. He's on a rating of 110. So he, he's no back number, you know. Clive, thank you very much. Yes, very exciting horse, Diligent Harry still. And Wings of War, thank you for uh, spending the time this Sunday morning to chat and uh, good luck uh, over the next few weeks. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Rishi. Take care. Well, just recently, Monday, in fact, the BHA published their fixture list for 2022. And as you can imagine, it's raised a number of talking points. So some people in support of uh, the increase for the weekend fixtures. Some people not so happy. Uh, but we're going to talk about it with Richard Wayman, uh, who is the Chief Operating Officer for the BHA. Richard, good morning. Morning, Rishi. Thank you for having me on today. No, thank you for coming on to chat. Obviously, there are a lot of uh, interesting points that have, been, that, that have been raised by the, the, the fixture list. What do you think the headlines are that you really wanted to get across? I, I assume the, the valuable Sunday meetings is, is top of the agenda. Yeah, I think I'd probably start by setting, setting the context in which the fixture list for 2022 was produced. And that's very much that um, the sport and the fixture list is put together by both the BHA and the race courses and the sports participants. Was, was devised with a view to supporting the sport's recovery from what's obviously been a really a really challenging 18 months, not just for racing, but for everybody. We've had race courses lose revenues of, of over £400 million. We had prize money uh, fall last year by 40% compared with uh, 2019. And the horse population, whilst that's actually um, remained relatively robust, um, we have seen a fall this year in the number of two-year-olds and even three-year-olds. So it's really the fixture list was about trying this year to, to support the sport's recovery from that difficult, through, uh, that, that difficult period. And, and basically the, the headlines from it, I would say, would be that the, the sport began by saying, we don't want an increase in our fixture list in 2022. I think it was felt that that's not what the sport's customers wanted. And therefore, we were working with a similar sort of number to the previous year's fixture lists. But we did really want to concentrate on how we might be able to um, better serve our customers um, by introducing two or three initiatives that, that could work from that perspective. One of those, one of the successes of the last 18 months has been the, the growth of better fixtures on a Sunday. And when I say better fixtures, higher quality um, and, and more prize money. And that's obviously attracted more media coverage and television coverage and generally been well received by, by many of the sports customers. And we felt that 2022 gave us an opportunity to build on that. So we've introduced a small number of, 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 of high value fixtures on Sundays that we hope will we'll continue in that vein um, from, from the successes over the last 18 months. So that would be one area primarily focused on, on the sort of stay at home and, and the betting uh, customer of British racing. A second area is we've looked to reintroduce some fixtures that actually were up, many of them were in the fixture list before the pandemic. Some of these additional fixtures on, on Saturday afternoons. And whilst I'd be the first to say that they aren't really required from a betting perspective, because we know that from a betting perspective, those Saturdays have already got plenty of, of, of content on them. What, what we found in all of, those, all of these additional fixtures that we'd be looking to put on would be that they would provide um, opportunities for good crowds. So, you know, Chester, for example, would be taking some of them, maybe getting in 20,000 people. And not only does that mean that Chester can offer 
good money on that day. It also obviously allows uh, prize money to be added to other fixtures across the course of, of the season. So, so that would be, I would say, a, a second area. And of course, the other balancing act, one of the other balancing acts we have when putting the fixture list together is thinking about all the people that, that make the fixture list possible, that work day in, day out to service it. And we've introduced a number of initiatives over the years to try and support um, uh, the, the participants and those servicing the fixtures, whilst at the same time helping the sport to grow and appeal to its customers. And that's a really tricky balancing act that we face every year. One initiative that we've introduced uh, for 2022 is the introduction of rider-restricted meetings. There's just a small number of them, but where we have breaks in the fixture list, we have some code breaks um, in the fixture list so that so that the participants involved in those particular codes get a couple of breaks on the flat, a couple on the jumps. We've managed to extend those, certainly for jockeys anyway, by introducing a small number of, of, of these rider-restricted meetings. And there are the, the, those four, those four uh, fixtures, those four breaks, uh, a break on the flat in, in March, and again at the end of the season, and, and over jumps, that those breaks come in in April, at the end of the, at the, end of the course season, and again at the beginning of August. Uh, Richard, thank you for that. The rider restrictor fixture is obviously very welcomed by the, the PGA, but I wanted to just put to you a couple of things that have been said. And uh, Dale Gibson of the PGA, so obviously he welcomes the, the blank periods for riders, um, but he does have significant concerns about the sheer volume of fixtures that still remain for next year. Uh, Ed Bethel, uh, who obviously was in the, in, in the papers recently, he said he's, he's baffled by the addition of 18 Sunday and Saturday fixtures in, in 22 because the work-life balance for stable staff is tough. What do you say to those two particular uh, comments from, from Dale Gibson and, and Ed Bethel? Well, I, I certainly understand them um, and, and have a degree of sympathy with them. Of course, the, 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 other, the other side of the coin and this balancing act that, I, that I'm talking about, Rishi, is at the same time we, we need to um, generate revenues for the sport so that we can offer better prize money than we've offered in the past so that we can have more horses and uh, more owners involved in racing and the sport grows rather than, than contracts. And, and we, we have to walk that fine line between trying to introduce initiatives to help um, those that service the fixture list. So, you know, obviously in recent years, we've introduced those breaks. We've, we've um, introduced final earlier sort of finish times to evening fixtures. More recently, the one meeting a day um, restriction that's been brought in for, for jockeys. So there are there are there are measures that we've been that have been introduced. Of course, it's also worth saying that there are when we when we consider these uh, opportunities for the fixture list, there are a number of, of opportunities that get left on the cutting room floor, as it were, mm. because actually we decided it would be unreasonable to ask the sports participants and everybody else involved in in servicing the fixture list to to actually do some of the things that potentially might work commercially but but wouldn't necessarily um, work or be fair and reasonable to ask the sports participants to complete so so it so it is a fine balance that we have to that we have to sort of try and tread between trying to meet the needs of the sports customers who increasingly want racing to take place when when they're not working yeah. but at the same time recognize that that puts a, a heavy price on on the people within racing who do make that fixture list work and it's it's a fine balance that we that we constantly try to try to walk and inevitably when we issue a fixture list you know there will be people that think we haven't quite got that balance right 
you know, we, we, we have to accept it is difficult to do so. I, I appreciate and I imagine it is difficult indeed. You talk about the, the well-being of jockeys and that has obviously been uh, paramount in, in the thought process that's gone into co uh, the composition of the fixture list. I wanted to ask you about stable staff, which has been a, a, a big talking point. You know, Richard Hannon Sr. talked about it, Ed Bethel and others have mentioned it. One or two don't have a problem with it. And whilst the BHA uh, are clearly uh, 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 are concerned about all participants in sport, do you feel the BHA should be responsible for the welfare of stable staff who are asked to work as much as they are because of the fixture list? Uh, or do you feel that that responsibility belongs to trainers? Where do you see that, that fitting? I, I don't think there's a, there's, a, there's a black and white answer to that question because my, my sense is actually it's, it's a responsibility for the, for the entire sport. I mean, obviously there is a, an employer and employee relationship between trainers and, and their staff. And so, Obviously, um, trainers have a responsibility, and as I, you know, as we're all aware, that there's been there's been progress made in recent years, both in terms of the discussions that go on and the contracts that go on between NTF and, and NAS, and also some individual um, practices that different that different trainers have introduced over the years. And certainly, I know from speaking to a number of trainers that they try to to improve um, the way that they organise things within their own yards to try and better. Um, support their, their their staff so so there's certainly an element of of, of, a, of it course being a responsibility for trainers and their staff to, 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 to try and improve things together um, for, for our workforce but but I think there's a broader responsibility for the entire sport including of course within that the BHA and I think we have always got to be trying to uh, develop ways and think of ways that we can ultimately improve um, the the sort of uh, environment in which our, our staff are asked to operate and you know one of our challenges at the moment is that the way that the sport is funded um, and the way that the sports revenues flow and therefore prize money um, the prize money develop, uh, is, is created is linked to volume and what I would hope in perhaps in, in future years is that if, if that current funding model were to evolve it might be possible at some stages in the future to think about the possibility of creating blank days within the fixture list mm. that, that could potentially work. But the way that the sport's currently funded, you know, that would be a very expensive um, a, a policy for the sport to take, which, which ultimately impacts prize money, which ultimately impacts owners and horse numbers. And obviously what we're trying to do is to find ways to improve the way that, that improve, improve the sort of working conditions for our staff but at the same time, not enter into a, a decline or a contraction that ultimately doesn't serve the, the industry and the sport in the longer term. One, one final thing I want to ask you about, if that's OK, Richard, was about field sizes. Uh, and clearly, uh, the, the stats this year suggest that we, we do have too many fixtures. I think it's something like 16% for the year that we've had five runners or less. And just in the month of August, it was around 19%. And obviously, when you see statistics like that, people immediately think, well, we've got too much if we're getting such small fields. Obviously, this year, we've had the Sunday series, we've had the racing league, etc. Um, that have clearly impacted on the weekend sized fields as well. So with that in mind, I think even remaining, I think your four fixtures lighter in 2022 in total, uh, I guess there is a, a feeling within the sport that with those numbers to hand, surely as time goes on, we need to be reducing the number of fixtures in order to sustain field sizes, no? 
obviously, again, I, I, I begin to sound like a broken record. <laughs> I understand. There is, there is a, there's a balance to strike here because, yes, if we were to stage fewer fixtures, that would, one would imagine, certainly in the short term, lead to more competitive fields, which, of course, is something that we would all like to see. All of us, you know, within the sport and certainly within the BHA, we want the most competitive racing possible. When sport, uh, when people watch sport, they want to see a competitive product. And small fields, particularly if they are uncompetitive races, you know, they, they are not serving the sport well. But of course, the, the flip side of the coin is that if we start taking um, fixtures races out of the out of the fixture list, then again, that comes at a price. The way that the sport's funded through the levy, through 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 the media rights payments made to race courses, they are linked to volume. So that so that sort of contraction of, of fixtures and races would come at a cost that ultimately would mean less prize money and therefore potentially um, fewer fewer horses. But one thing I just would add, and you know, I I, I acknowledge all the points that you've made around the field sizes and the competitiveness. I think sometimes it is it is right that we just take a step back and say, well, actually, they're not that different to where we've been in previous years. If you look at the average field size so far this year, 8.7. Well, if we go back to the same period um, in 2019 before the pandemic, 8.8. The year before that, 8.7. You refer to, you know, the percentage of races not getting um, six runners, 16.1% this year. In 2019, the same period, 15.7%. Now, I'm not saying those numbers are all right. They are not as good as we would like them to be. Mm. Sport, we want the sport to be more competitive. The point I'm making is they're broadly in line with where we've been for, for a number of years. Yes, the Breeders' Cup will be live on Racing TV on the 5th and 6th of November. Uh, and a few races that might have a significant bearing on the Breeders' Cup, certainly turf-wise, uh, took place in Canada and indeed Belmont yesterday. Uh, Nick Luck in town in Woodbine, making waves as always. Uh, and he was there to witness the Woodbine Mile. We'll look back at the closing stages of that. Frankie Dettori went over to ride for Chad Brown, uh, Raging Bull in the Sotsas colours. Duke of Hazard was running for Paul and Oliver Cole, but they came up against... Uh, a six-year-old, a bit of an old timer out in front. It's wonderful stuff, isn't it? A small trainer. So the, the stable side got an easy lead up front. Jukes of Hazard tried to follow him through the early fractions, but he got, he got an easy attempt, turned in for home, and they, they couldn't catch him. I mean, he's now got a all-fees-paid entry into the, the Breeders' Cup mile, which is exactly what these sort of incentives are there for, for the connections who might not otherwise have, have rolled the dice. We should come in on the run there. I had a slight panic this morning seeing Space Traveller uh, rattle home for second because yes. I've done Richard Fire's column. I thought I'd missed him. He's now trained in America yes. for Clipper Logistics, but that, that was a good one for him in second. But yeah, it, it's a story about the winner of that race the horse, the trainer, the owners, and they've got a shot at Breeders' Cup glory now. Indeed, uh, Town Crew's the winner. Uh, beating, well, Raging Bull ended up finishing back in third and sadly Duke of Hazard uh, couldn't hold on to her placing. Uh, the Canadian International uh, produced a success for a seven-year-old, Tan Cruz 6, a seven-year-old, Walton Street, trained by Charlie Appleby, ridden by Frank Editori, and you just had, saw Frank Editori having a little look behind. This was very, very easy in the end. This is unbelievable, isn't it? It's a one-horse race from before they've, they've turned for home. I think, was it Frank's first group one winner for golfing for seven or nine years? Wow. Which is uh, some stuff isn't the success that he's Nine had years. Um, and they've been used to the seeing this out with him in the, the the royal blue silks and look how far he's won by he, he's a cut above these I mean you all know he, he was 
he's useful in Maidan, isn't he? Yeah. This horse, he, he progressed through so the carnival. He's came a up short. really good handicapper, yeah. a listed horse at Maidan. Yeah, he came up short when he went to the Shima Classic, didn't he? He's not up to yeah. to that level, but what, whatever the reason, that Woodbine Turf has just brought him to life and he won as he liked. And what about the horse behind him? Worthy of a mention as oh. well, another old-timer, uh, Desert Encounter. He was twice winner of the Canadian International before. Yeah, and second this year. What a servant to David Simcock he's been, hasn't he? He always turns up, runs his race, and plenty more prize money in the, the kitty there, and just a wonderful sort of horse that traders will stream of him. Yeah. But you can just point at these big international prizes and he doesn't let you down. Indeed. He and, of course, the winner, uh, Walton Street, fantastic older brigade. But there isn't a trainer in the world, I would suggest, uh, Dave, that has a strength in depth with three-year-old Colts in particular uh, than Charlie Appleby. The Jockey Club Derby Invitational uh, also fell the way of Charlie Appleby yesterday at Belmont Park. And this was some success from your beer. Look at this manoeuvre out wide. I mean, he, he's, he races last, he switches wide here, and you think, oh, well, what's going to happen? Because I, I never thought this was a horse blessed with a turn of foot. You no. saw him win the Voltage here, we saw him winning at Newmarket, we saw, we've seen him in action, but all of a sudden he's come to life under Jamie Spencer on the turn and put this to bed in two or three strides. And as you said, the Charlie Appleby three-year-old Colts, the, the season that they're having is incredible and there could be one or two even more significant chapters to be written yet this autumn. It is. Jamie Spencer, of course, there doing the, the steering for, for, for Charlie Appleby, but go through the list of Charlie Appleby's middle-distance three-year-olds, the, the two, obviously, that everyone knows about, Adea, Hurricane Lane, this guy, Yabir, uh, but you mentioned there, there are a couple of others that aren't so uh, high up in terms of profile, but they're very, very good potentially. But that, that's, he's got five or six, hasn't he, that he could, he could be pitching into the major autumn showpieces this year. And then you start thinking about 2022 and where the later developing stars are going to turn into. I mean, we've got the potential of him running Adair and Hurricane Lane in an arc, which yeah. is, I mean, that's what Godolphin has been about, hasn't it? They've, when they were... Kings of the Castle, they were so sporting how they campaigned yeah. their horses. They kept horses in training, they competed at the highest level and Charlie's yeah. just taken that on and upwards and it's wonderful to see, isn't it, that there hasn't been a, a golden decade for Godolphin, but they've been slowly building to this and right now they're having the, a, such a wonderful time, a long way to continue. Uh, a really incredible run of success. Uh, right, well, as part of our build-up to the Breeders' Cup here on Racing TV, we're catching in, uh, checking in each week with Christina Blacker uh, stateside. This week, she's got Drew Fleming, president of the Breeders' Cup, with her. We are here at the Keeneland September Yearling Sale. You might hear a little bit of the sights and sounds of the sale, but I am joined by Drew Fleming, the president and CEO of the Breeders' Cup. Drew, for some of the folks overseas that might not be as familiar with you, tell them about your background and what brought you to the Breeders' Cup in the first place. Well, actually, this very sales grounds itself. Um, I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, didn't grow up going to the races until I was 12 years old, and a good pal of mine, Gatewood Bell, took me for the first time and just had a blast and loved seeing the best horses run and come to the sales, and it was just really, really easy to get involved. Um, ended up going to law school for a bit, worked on a couple farms in, in high school, then went to law school and um, came back and uh, I think I'd been working for three months and Gatewood called and said, hey, I've found a horse for us. So I think I took two of my first three months paychecks and put it in a horse named Nina Fever. Um, she came out here on opening day in the spring meet and we won by six links and it's been awesome ever since. So thanks to Gatewood and when I was working on a farm, I worked for Brian O'Rourke over at Wimbledon and so guys like that make a difference on guys like me and it's just been a great ride. 
as you took the reins at the Breeders' Cup just after the 2019 event, nothing could have prepared you for leading the organization through a pandemic, but how would you describe the last couple of years? Well, I mean, we've got such a great team at the Breeders' Cup. Our board is tremendous. Um, they're so supportive, so smart, and they've been in this game for, for a very long time. And um, I, I didn't come in just cold feet. Um, fortunately, I had worked under Craig Fravel for several years, and Craig is just the absolute best. And when he hired me at the Breeders' Cup, he said, I can't promise you everything, but I can tell you I'll give you the Harvard education of the Breeders' Cup in racing. And I, I believe you know he, he did just that. And I could still continuing to learn every day, but um, we also have a great management team with Dora, John, Rogers, and, and I know in England we have Ed Sackville, Josh Christian. So it, it's a, an amazing group of people that love this business. They wake up every morning to do what's best by the horse, and we know we're going to have a fantastic Breeders' Cup with them around. The board voted you in unanimously, so I know they were excited to have you there as well. We're about six weeks away from this year's Breeders' Cup at Del Mar. So what's happening with your team right now? This is kind of crunch time. What are you guys working on? Well, we're laser focused on having the world championships. Um, obviously, 2020 was in 2021 has been a pretty difficult year for everyone with COVID, and we're all deserving of some fun. And so we're going to do just that. The world's best horses will be in short order where the surf meets the turf, and we're all going to have a lot of fun. Um, for those that haven't been to Del Mar before, it's a world-class facility right on the Pacific Ocean. And so not only are you going to see the best races in the world, but you're going to have a super time, wonderful hospitality, and it's going to be a wonderful racing festival. What are some of the events that will be surrounding and supporting the Breeders' Cup racing itself? Well, it's truly a festival of racing, and, and I like to tell people while the Breeders' Cup races are Friday and on Saturday, it's a whole week-long festivities with the draw occurring on Monday, which will be in the beautiful paddock at Del Mar. Um, there'll be parties all through the week, um, great music, art. It's truly a life, equestrian lifestyle event, and there's something there for everyone. As far as the look on Sunday viewers go, we're talking internationally. Travel can be difficult. International travel can be very hard. What is the Breeders' Cup doing to help the horses and the horsemen get to Del Mar? Well, unfortunately, or maybe unfortunately, um, we've been through an event last year during a global pandemic, so, so we're used to this. And look, the horses, particularly the international horses, it makes our event so special. And we're doing everything possible to make sure that one, they're going to get there, and we know they are, uh, and two, that we're going to get there, they're going to get there in a way that they're comfortable with. Um, so we've been working with the Department of Homeland Security, um, Border Patrol, as well as Mersant on our international shipping um, to make sure that uh, any, all of our trainers and owners that want to go, they're going to be able to go and um, their horses are going to get there very safely and uh, be in, in, as great as they can be. It seems like the racing is more readily available too as far as on TV or online. Is that sort of part of wanting to continue to share the event even with people that might not be able to make it this year? Well last year and one of the most difficult decisions I've, I had to make or recommend was that we had no fans at the 2020 Breeders' Cup and that's something no one wanted to happen but you know in retrospect it was the right thing to do considering the situation we were all in but we knew when we made that decision we wanted to make the best at-home experience possible and so it was the most technology advanced production ever for horse racing and it was such a resounding success that we said hey why not? Let's do it again. So we're going to do it again. Uh, and we've got great partners. Um, you know, NBC will, will be in a, again. And um, we've struck a great deal this year with ITV, Sky Sports, RUK. So and in addition to our website. So there's many, many ways to watch the Breeders' Cup. And if you can't be here in person, you're going to feel like you were here at home. 
And lastly, we have some challenge races still to come. This is a very busy time, I know. But do you have any names internationally that you're kind of pretty firmly expecting to make the trip? Well, you know, we're still a ways away, so fingers crossed. But we'd love to have Mistriff, Order of Australia, Ternawa, Audaria, just to name a few. Um, again, the international support has been so tremendous over the years. We do everything we can to get them here, and we, we would love, love to have the best come to determine, again, who the best horses in the world are. Well, you've done a phenomenal job under trying circumstances, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to it again this year at Del Mar. No, it's, a, it's an honor and a privilege to have this position. Um, we have so many great supporters, and I'd like to thank our owners and our breeders for around the world because without them none of this would be possible uh, and it's such a great industry and we saw during these trying times everyone coming together and we're going to do it again and breeders cup will be spectacular drew fleming from the breeders cup one of the best teams in all of racing bringing you the best event the world thoroughbred championships from del mar november 5th and 6th Delighted to have Danny Cook in the studio. Obviously, Danny, there's a, a moment of sadness that it's at the end of your career because you've clearly still got much more to offer. Uh, and the first thing is to talk about that decision, which is still so fresh, the fact that you've had to call it a day. Uh, because looking at you from top to bottom, you look absolutely fine. So talk me through it. Yeah, um, basically, when I, I, I had me forward of my injury and then I was trying to get back as quick as I could so I could... Uh, I didn't want it was early in the season, so I didn't want to miss. And the too fall much. was a year ago, October yeah, 2020. That's right. Yeah. So um, I was, I had my fall, and then I was, I felt perfectly fine within in my, within myself and in my body. Um, so I was keen to get back as quick as I could because, as far as I was concerned, it was just a bit of facial, and uh, uh, my, my bones were all still intact. So I was <laughs> I was good to go. Um, so I was keen to get back as quick as I could. I got back quite quick, I think, um, and then I, as as I started racing, I just um, I just kept struggling to see out of my right eye. Just um, when I was going into the horizontal position and tilting my neck back, um, I had excess skin or, or whatever was kept flapping down and covering my eye, my eyesight. So um, so I was struggling, um, and then I called time on that, um, and then tried to just get myself better and uh, see what we could do. Um, but the hospital at the time says. Um, they, they recommended against any operations or anything like that just because it, it, the, the chances are it could be make it a lot worse and it could make me a lot more get double vision yeah. and make things a lot worse than uh, than what it is already. So. Uh, are you all right with looking back at the incident on, yeah. on Ravenhill Road? Um, because I imagine uh, some people might not want to see it considering the gravity of it now but as you said at the time you didn't think it was that bad. 
No, it's just as a jockey, you always think as long as you, you move your legs and you move your hands or arms, as long as you can, your body's fine. Everything else is artificial, really. Um, so you think just get get me back out there, yeah. um, but obviously, um, yeah, obviously, everything happened for, for a reason, really. But um, yeah, yeah I, I, when when I first was coming around, I was checking to see if I was, and I was thinking, oh, I'm absolutely fine, but. Funny because I thought I was just about to come to win this win race, race at the yeah. time. I was in just third thinking, at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking, go on, in boy. And then it just uh, and it was the horse behind you. Yeah, I've, yeah. It, at the time, I remember watching. I thought, well, that's a, a relatively innocuous fall by. S but then yeah. you see. Yeah, obviously I was knocked out there for a bit. Um, just as I was coming round, I was just I just could feel f I could feel tiggling on my face like when you're a bit numb and I was thinking oh, obviously I had a bit of a bang to the face um, and then when I started coming around I started to sit up and then blood was just dripping out and then I was just thinking oh, I, don't, I don't really know what's going on here I would, obviously I had a lot of blood coming out my right eye and I saw my right, my right eye had swelled up straight away so I couldn't really see out of it much anyway um, and then it was just literally they just took me to hospital and then when they got me in hospital um, they were doing loads of like intense searches into the eyeball and yeah. and stuff like that um so yeah it was all a bit all a bit of a all a bit of a palaver really at, at the well, time <laughs> you say it's a palaver i mean did they did they not tell you straight away that this is potentially uh going to affect you for the the, the time that it obviously did or did you feel that it was i think obviously yeah. jockeys push the boundaries a bit don't they yeah i mean obviously as a, as a jockey you would never give anyone the full intent of what injury you've got or, or how you're feeling you kind of just um you kind of just try and carry on as best you can um and things have eventually come right as, as they have done before you, you just carry on with any niggly problems and that you've got you just carry on through it and then uh, um eventually you come right and you get sound and then you're fine again um but yeah, um, this one didn't seem to come right. Uh, I, I want to ask you about that attitude, if that's okay, because that's a positive in some senses. The fact that jockeys hide the full extent of their injuries, they want to press on because they, they feel that they need to for, for whatever reason. But also it can be a big negative. It, it wouldn't be, for example, the, the example that you'd set to your, your children. For, you wouldn't say yeah. to your kids, hide, hide your injury and, and push on, and you'd want them to, to deal with it. Yeah, I think um, I think the way the world's probably changed now from when I was growing up. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a lot older, so we was a lot just get on with it, fall over, pick yourself up, get on with it. Um, where I think today's everything's a lot more professional now. You, like if you got the Jack Berry House, Oakley House, um, so you got all the all the you get you looked after so well now as a jockey. Obviously, when I was starting out, it was a long time ago. Yeah. So um, uh, we used to just, so I suppose. You just get on with it. You just yeah. got on with it. Uh, it's just one of them things you did. You just got on with every day, whatever it was. Just go out and get on with it. Where now you you looked after so well. So if you have got any niggly problems or anything, you have got physios on hand. You got um, you got doctors. You got everyone yeah. there to to help you. So um, yeah, obviously things have time has, has changed and things have got better for for the younger generation coming through. So I'm sure they'll be a lot um, better equipped going out to ride um, than probably we was. So few years ago. Well you talk about the start so let's go back uh, to, to growing up in Romford and how you ended up choosing a career as a jockey and ended up in the in the Northern Racing College is that right? Yeah that's stuff? right yeah yeah I just um, I finished school I finished school when I was young I was about 15 um, and 
my dad, uh, my mum was sick of me, so I had to go work <laughs> with my dad every day. So I was uh, working like on landscape gardening and uh, doing a lot of heavy lifting and hard work. And I remember getting to about 16, I was like, oh, this is this is hard old job this. I think uh, there must be an easier way of life. <laughs> and um, and I, my granddad and dad used to love the racing. So we used to watch racing every every right. weekend, um, have their little bets and place pots and stuff. Um, so I watched it with them and I, used to, I just got right into it. I was like, I'd be out for playing football with my mates and then yeah. like me, like that, I'd be shouting like, your race is off, so I'd be sprinting back in to watch <laughs> me race, watch me race, and then go back out and play football. Um, so yeah, I just, I just loved it. And then when I went to the racing school, um, when I was 16, I went to the Northern Racing School, and uh, that was it. I just got, I just got the bug. I just loved the yeah. chemistry with the horses. Uh, it was great. Uh, and then you ended up, of all places, uh, at Martin and, and, and David Pipe. And what was that experience like? Yeah, it was, it was funny really, because I kept. Um, when I was at the racing school and everyone was used to say, start with a small trainer and try and work your way up, you get more opportunities yeah. and stuff like that. And I did that and um, and I did get some good opportunities of uh, Barry Levy and Andy Street who got my license yeah. first. Um, I didn't have many rides though and I just thought, I was going, I think I must have been about 21 and I was just, or 20 maybe. And I was just thinking, I've got to give this a proper go because like, I'm not earning no money and I'm getting yeah. older so I need to try and Either give it a proper go or get out of the get out of it because yeah. um, all I wanted to do was race, so that was all I wanted to do. Um, so I went to David Pipes. Um, I went down there and um, yeah, they were brilliant. They looked after me really well and uh, and 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 taught me like loads. They just you get out what you put in at Mr Pipes. You know yeah. um, the heart like you was in every morning feeding, every weekend feeding, riding out. So the more effort you put in, yeah. that the, the, they'd give you back. You know. So. Uh, and when you walked in and you saw that setup, I, I'm guessing that's the the most advanced setup that you would have seen and and been part of in at that stage of your career. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. It was everything was professionally run. So you had your assistants, you had your trainer, assistant trainers. Um, so yeah, I mean. The way it was all run, it was like a military operation. Yeah. Really, it was uh, it was just done really, really well, and uh, it was great to be involved in that environment because that gave you the the grounding really to uh, to be more professional about going forward instead yeah. of just trying to Mickey Mouse stuff. You had to you had to do uh, stuff properly, you know. Yeah, and they not only gave you the grounding, but they gave you opportunities, uh, including a Cheltenham Festival winner. Yeah, uh, in the colours of of David Johnson. Yeah, yeah, David Johnson was great to me actually. Um, he he looked after me really well when um, yeah here it's actually funny because I think it was maybe 48 hour declarations yeah. in this race or, or maybe the day before but I remember David rang me and he said because uh, I ran on Alvic in the Peter Master time right. and I used to yeah. ride Alvic quite a lot and he says do you want to ride Alvic or Great Endeavour and I says um, if I've got a choice I think I'd ride Great Endeavour and he says well you ain't got a choice anyway <laughs> <down the phone. laughs> and I was looking at declarations then and I was just hoping I was on a Great Endeavour because yeah. although he had a low weight he, he, he was lightly raced and uh, yeah he was uh, he, he was Timmy Murphy rides Shepard Turgeon in the same yeah race. Timmy rode for Nichols that day yeah so it, it, it was a great opportunity for me to, to get and uh, and then to reward them all uh, with the win was, uh, was great what was that feeling like for someone who grew up in Romford sort of you know, ended up Northern Racing College. I think you, you could have ended up in the army as well, couldn't yeah, you? Yeah, to, yeah. To, to, to live out what you wanted to do, live out your kind of dream uh, at the Cheltenham Festival when you were coming up that hill, hit that line, what was that like? Yeah, it was brilliant. I, obviously, it happened early on in my career. It's a shame I couldn't get another one uh, later on, really, but I just thought it was, oh, this is easy. This is. <laughs> I mean, every time I rode for David, we went to Cheltenham, I'd always 
be placed on a few of his horses every time at the festival. He just he was a brilliant for the brilliant man for the occasion. He just yeah. literally get them ready um, for them days. And I mean, great endeavour that day was was absolutely brilliant. He did not put a foot wrong. Did not put a foot wrong. Very lucky to be on in that day. You talk about. David Johnson and, and the fact that he gave you great support and your relationship with our Vic, he must have been a, a hell of a horse to ride as well. Yeah, yeah. Again, I was very lucky to get on him. Um, the first day, first time they let me ride him was uh, at Cheltenham, and uh, I ended up diverting, taking the wrong course, and then <laughs> I ended up getting a month banned. So, um, yeah, that didn't go down too well. And then I feel like, <laughs> no, when you just feel like you let everyone down, yeah. you're like, oh god, this is like wanted the turf to come and swallow me up, and. Um, yeah, my first ride back was back on Alvic yeah. at in the Peter Marsh at um, at Haydock. So then for me to go and win, I was yeah. like, oh my god, this is brilliant! Yeah. Like because I know you're going out there all nervous. I I hadn't rode for a month, and the last time I did, I took the wrong course. And now I'm back on Alvic, <laughs> going to make the running again. I didn't know which course to take, so um, it was all jump a bit, the big ones. Yeah, just jump follow the big, the big ones. ones yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He was brilliant that day, and uh, yeah, we, we was lucky enough to get how, the win. How did they? How did they? Take it. How did uh, David Johnson and, and the Pipe team take it? David Johnson was brilliant. He's like, it's just one of them things. He, he showed me great support throughout throughout my career. Um, he was he was brilliant. And um, and David Pipe again, brilliant. I mean, the next day I think I tried to I tried to not come in in the morning because I was sulking, <laughs> and he come out and dragged me out to get <laughs> me back to work. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was it was. They both took it well. It yeah. was it was one of them things. I've done it a couple of times actually for David, unfortunately, but. Um, these things are sent to try us, so.